Thank you for that special music. It was a blessing to us, especially as we get into the Christmas season. Uh, and I think this is the first time <clears throat> since I've been at this church uh, that the message has started before 11 a.m. Uh, so there is, there is hope yet. It means I get over an hour to preach. That's what that means. No, uh, the message will not be that long, I promise. Uh, so like I had said, uh, yesterday afternoon I was planning on going Christmas caroling with the youth group. Around 1.30, pastor calls me, uh, and he sounds terrible. And he, the second he started talking, I realized what was coming. And so I knew I was going to be preaching today. And so it's, it's the Lord's plan, and I'm trusting him with it. And so this is a passage uh, that's been on my mind for a couple of years. Every time I read through the Bible, it sticks out to me. Haven't had a, an opportunity really to preach on it. And so I decided uh, now would be a good time to dive into it, into the depths of it. So the main passage we're going to be in is 1 Samuel 15, if you would like to open your Bibles there. And the topic to be discussed today uh, is the topic of obedience. Now the dictionary definition of obedience, if you were to open up a, a dictionary, is submission to the restraint or command of authority. Uh, another definition is the willingness to obey. Submission to the restraint of or command of authority. And something that you see all throughout Scripture, from basically beginning to end, is this call to obey the Lord. Just to give you uh, an example, I know you're in 1 Samuel, I would keep a finger there, uh, but flip to Deuteronomy briefly. Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 13. We will be coming back to this passage later on in the message. But Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 to 13. We read this. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, that's obedience, which I am commanding you today for your good. And if we jump all the way into the New Testament, turn with me briefly to 1 John, we see that this call to obedience has not disappeared. It has not gone away. 1 John chapter 2 Verses 3 to 6. Verse 3. By this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That's obedience. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments or disobeys is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. The dictionary definition I gave of obedience is a little too general for what scripture gets at when it talks about obedience. Obedience is the recognition of and humble submission to God's authority. It is recognizing God's authority, and it is submitting to God's authority. And it is one of the defining characteristics of faith throughout Scripture. And this is crucial in our understanding of biblical 
obedience because it is born of faith. We are only able to obey the Lord because we have faith in him. For us, that is faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And that is what enables us to obey the Lord, to recognize his authority and humbly submit to it. But biblical obedience isn't just going through the motions. It has as much to do with the inside, with the heart, as it does with the actions. And that is something that is going to be on display in 1 Samuel 15. So we'll flip back there. And in the Old Testament, when it talks of obedience, the concept is often linked to listening. It is often linked to not just understanding what's being said, not just comprehending the words you hear, but also acting in accordance with them, acting in conformity with them. And if you've ever had to tell someone to do something, you know there's a difference between listening and listening. There's, yeah, they're hearing the words you're saying, and it's registering in their brain, and there's, yeah, they're getting up and doing that thing. Biblical obedience is getting up and doing the thing. It's hearing the command from the Lord, from his word, and then doing it, acting in accordance with that command. Now, our passage in 1 Samuel 15 deals with a negative example. It is an example of what not to do. The main individual in this passage is King Saul. And as we will see, he disobeys the Lord, and that is his sin. But instead of repenting, instead of confessing his sin, he will both try to justify his sin and rationalize his sin, as is the tendency of all human beings when they are confronted with their sin. All human beings will, at some point or time when confronted with their sin, try and rationalize it. Yeah, but something good came out of it. Yeah, but it all worked out in the end. Or they'll try to justify it. Yeah, what I did was wrong, but that person deserved it because what they did to me was wrong. And we will see both of these attitudes on display in Saul. His sin and his response to the confrontation with his sin shows his lack of faith and it shows his bad theology. Disobedience can never please God. Because it is rebellion against him. Rather, God delights in obedience. Disobedience can never please God because it is rebellion against him. Rather, he delights in obedience. So hopefully, you're in 1 Samuel 15. Uh, and in 1 Samuel 15, we're at a point where Saul has not been king for very long. To, to give you a little bit of background, Samuel is the last judge of the 12 tribes of Israel. He gets old, and his sons do not follow in his ways. And so the people come to him, and they say, we don't want any more judges. We want a king. Now, their motives for asking for a king are not good motives. And so Samuel is hesitant to give them a king. But the Lord says, no, we'll, we'll give them a king, and a king is chosen. That king is the first king of Israel, Saul. He is from the tribe of Benjamin. And so Saul is made king. And as a king, he is supposed to represent God to the people. His responsibility is to obey the Lord and do his will and to lead his people into a closer relationship with the Lord. That's his job. 
That's what he's supposed to do as the king, as he rules, as he governs. It is all supposed to be under the authority of God and leading his people and his nation closer to the Lord because Saul is supposed to represent God to the people. So he is coronated at Gilgal after victory over the Ammonites, and it's at this coronation that Samuel gives a speech. I'm going to read briefly from 1 Samuel 12. Verses 14 to 15, if you want to flip there, you do not have to. But 1 Samuel 12, 14 to 15 is part of Samuel's speech during Saul's confirmation. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. If you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. Samuel makes it very clear the consequences. If you listen, you and your king will follow the Lord, and if you don't, the Lord will be against you. If you obey, you will follow the Lord, and if you disobey, the Lord will be against you. And in 1 Samuel 13 to 15, we get the early part of Saul's reign, and he fails to listen almost immediately. I won't read the passages, but in 1 Samuel 13 is where Saul offers the burnt offering, which is sin. He is not supposed to do that. The king is not allowed to do that. For all of his power, all of his prestige, the king is not a priest. He is not allowed to offer burnt offering. But his army is deserting him out of fear. Samuel, who's supposed to be giving the offering, is late and he's nowhere to be found. And his enemy, the Philistines, are gathering to make war against him. So he decides, I'm just going to make the burnt offering and we'll just get this show on the road. He does not obey the Lord. And when he is confronted with his sin by Samuel, he is very quick to point the finger. He will bring up those three excuses I just went over. First, everybody is leaving, so I had to do something. Second, Samuel, it's kind of your fault because you're late. Uh, you were supposed to be here on time to do this, and you weren't, so someone had to do it. And third, the enemy of God is about to come and fight us, so someone needed to do something. When confronted with his sin, when confronted with his disobedience, Saul points the finger. It's my soldier's fault, it's your fault, Samuel, and it's the enemy's fault. It's not my fault. This shows a reoccurring issue with Saul. First and foremost... Saul will tend to trust the religious, religious ritual over any form of faith. Instead of faithfully obeying the Lord, he will just go through the motions and assume that that's good enough to get the Lord's blessing. Second, he tends to point the finger. He tends to pass the blame. Just like his great, 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 all the way back parents did, Adam and Eve, when they were confronted with sin. And just like we do today when we were confronted with our sin. Yeah, that was wrong, but it's because they, or it's because she, or he. It's very easy to point that finger and to pass that blame. Later, in 1 Samuel 14, Saul is once again at war with the Philistines, and there he makes a rather foolish vow. He makes an oath that none of his soldiers in his army are allowed to eat any food until he gets victory. Why he makes this vow, I have no idea. Uh, maybe it's to motivate his soldiers to fight because the sooner they win, the sooner they get to eat. But whatever the reason, it has disastrous consequences. First, 
when the Lord does give them victory, the soldiers can't really have a huge victory because they're too weak from not eating. Second, when they do fall upon the spoils of war, they eat with the blood still in the meat, which is a sin and a violation of the Lord's command. And third, because of Saul's oath, he almost ends up killing his son, Jonathan. Because Jonathan was busy leading the charge faithfully against the Philistines. He didn't hear the oath, and he ate, was informed of the oath later, and Saul nearly kills his own son for breaking his oath. It's only because the army steps in for Jonathan that Saul doesn't kill his son. What we're seeing in 1 Samuel 13 and 14 leading up to 15 is that Saul is a bad king. He disobeys God, he fears the people, and he makes foolish decisions. He does not listen to the Lord. He trusts more in just going through the motions. And these problems take us into chapter 15. So we're going to start chapter 15, verses 1 to 3. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. This is a reminder from Samuel to Saul that it is the Lord who made him king. This reminder will come up again. Verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, cattle and donkey. This word used here is utterly destroy. And this is the command, utterly destroy the Amalekites, every Amalekite, their king, all their men, all their women, all their children, all their infants, all their animals. This is a, a, a campaign of extermination. That is what the command is here. The word used here in Hebrew for utterly destroy has the idea of a ban or devoting or extermination. And it's a very unique command within scripture. It's the idea that a certain people group are devoted to God as an offering, as a sacrifice. And so they all have to go. This isn't something that's unique to the nation of Israel. Other nations also devoted people to their gods. But the idea in this devoting of a people group is their complete destruction. That, that these people are set apart to the Lord for destruction. And that is what... Saul is commanded to do. Now, the best example of this, the most famous example of this, because this is not the first time a command like this shows up in Scripture, is probably with Jericho. So turn with me to Joshua 6, 17 to 19, uh, and we will read the command regarding Jericho. It's very, very similar to the command that Saul was just given because it has the same exact idea. So Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 to 19. The city shall be under the ban. That is the same word as utterly destroy as it's translated in 1 Samuel. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. There's that idea of this being devoted to God. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you... 
Only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. Jump to verse 21. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of the sword. Jump to verse 24. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. These extermination campaigns are called for here and there throughout Scripture, and they are the ultimate form of punishment on a wicked people. When Joshua enters into the promised land, there are certain groups of people whose wickedness is so great and has been going on for so long that the proper punishment for them is complete extermination. It is, it is complete annihilation of all of them. And you see that in the book of Joshua. Here, it is the Amalekites. And here, Israel, under King Saul, is to be used as God's tool for punishment for the sins of the Amalekites. Many years later, the Babylonians will be the tool that God uses for punishment on the wicked Israelites. And the Israelites will get to experience what it means to be under divine punishment. But this is the command for Saul. And Samuel's language cannot be misunderstood. This is an extermination campaign. Kill everyone. Destroy everything. They are all devoted to the Lord for destruction. All Saul has to do is listen, is obey, and prove his allegiance to the Lord and faithful obedience to him. However, Saul really struggles with this. Starting in verse 7, 7 to 9 of 1 Samuel 15. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. Good so far. Verse 8, he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. He failed to listen. He was disobedient to the Lord. And as king, that's even worse. And he disobeys the Lord in front of his entire army, holding the Lord in contempt in front of everyone that he's supposed to be leading to obey the Lord. And with the idea that these people are devoted to destruction as a sacrifice to God, what Saul has done is he has sacrificed all the worthless and despised things, and he has kept all the best for himself. Please understand that that's definitely a part of this. All of these things were devoted to the Lord, the worst to the best. All of it was supposed to be God's. And what Saul does instead is he only gives the Lord the worst. And he keeps the best for himself, which is the exact opposite of what he is supposed to do in any kind of offering. Saul did not listen to God's command, and that's sin. So what he needs now is humility and repentance. Instead, we will get reasons and excuses as to why it's okay that Saul did what he did. And this is a result of Saul's bad theology, Saul's misunderstanding. Verse 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, 
he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. A detail of verse 12 is that Saul set up a monument for himself. That is rather telling of what his motivations are, of where his heart is right now. Saul's victory produced pride. His pride, no doubt, led him into the disobedience that took place and no doubt is going to influence the conversation he's about to have with Samuel. The travel that's described here, Carmel makes a monument and then goes down to Gilgal would be something very similar to a military parade. If you defeated your enemies, one of the ways that you glorified yourself and that you humiliated your enemy is you paraded around with them and all of their spoils. No doubt that is what's going on here as he has the king of the enemy, the Amalekites, and the best of their cattle with him. So he's proud. He thinks this victory is all on him and not given to him by the Lord. And we continue in verse 13. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Saul lies. Upon meeting Samuel, I have carried out the command of the Lord. And Samuel immediately knocks that house of cards down. Yeah, you obey the Lord. Then why do I hear cattle? Why do I hear sheep? Why do I hear oxen? Immediately knocks down his lie. Immediately knocks down his facade. And at this confrontation... Being confronted with his sin, what Saul does is immediately blame the people. They kept the animals. They kept the best of the stuff. It was the people. And, just to sweeten the deal here, Samuel, we kept all the best alive so that we could sacrifice it to the Lord your God. Win-win. We get to keep the best, we get to have the military parade, we get to look good, and the Lord your God gets the best of the sacrifice. Win, win. Saul is both rationalizing and justifying his sin. It wasn't my fault, it's the people's fault, and even if it was my fault, uh, it's for a good end. Because we're going to take these things and we're going to sacrifice them to the Lord. This is the exact same pattern, by the way, that we see in 1 Samuel 13 as to why he offered the sacrifice. He disobeyed God, he blamed others for his sin, and he excused it all for the greater good. This is the moment when he's confronted with his sin that Saul is supposed to seek forgiveness, assuming that he didn't realize up until this point that he had sinned. Confronted with his sin, he should have confessed his wrongdoing and sought the Lord, much like the next king David would do when Nathan the prophet confronts him about his sin with Bathsheba. And then you have Psalm 51, which is David's psalm of confession over that sin with Bathsheba. He should have humbly confessed his sin of disobedience, and then all of those sacrifices that he was going to make may have actually meant something. But he doesn't. Instead, 
Saul blames the people and tries to excuse the sin with good intentions. I didn't kill the animals then. I didn't devote the animals to the Lord then, but I'm going to sacrifice them now. Potato, potato, right? Yeah, I didn't kill them when I was supposed to. I didn't obey the Lord technically, uh, but I'm going to. This is the argument. Yeah, I disobeyed God, but it was to honor him. It was for a greater good. Wrong. Saul openly and publicly as king disobeyed God's command, and no mountain of good intentions, real or pretend, makes sin acceptable to God. Why on earth would God accept sacrifices from animals stolen from him by a man consumed by his pride? What could those sacrifices be other than completely worthless? And so Samuel's going to go after him. 1 Samuel 15, 17 to 21. Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Again, here's that reminder. Who made you king, Saul? It wasn't the people. It wasn't their rallying around you. It wasn't their vote being cast. Who made you king, Saul? The Lord did. Which naturally leads to the next question. So why didn't you obey him? He's the one who made you king. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Verse 19. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. You'll notice Saul just repeats himself because apparently Samuel didn't get it the first time. I did obey the Lord. I kept the king alive, but it's the people who disobeyed the Lord. But it's all good because we're going to offer sacrifices anyways. Genuinely, I don't think Saul believes he sinned here. And the reason for that is his, he, that he doubles down. I did obey the Lord. It's the people's fault. And we're going to offer a, a sacrifice to the Lord anyways. He doubles down on all of it. I don't think that he believes that he sinned, which just shows how absolutely blinding sin can be and how absolutely twisted we can be when we try to defend our actions when we know that they're sinful. When we are confronted by a loving brother or sister over our sin, how easy it is for us to twist the story to make us not look that bad. There's no repentance here. There's no confession. There's no contrite spirit like Psalm 51.16 talks about. It's just blame and excuses. Saul's record is one of fearing man more than God. And fearing man more than God always leads to disobedience. A great example of this would be Aaron with the golden calf. Instead of fearing God and obeying him, he fears the people and it leads to his sin. 
Samuel's just going to get to the point now, uh, because obviously Saul's not getting it. Verse 22 and 23, and this is, this is the core of this chapter. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul makes it as clear as he can. I'm sorry, Samuel makes it as clear as he can to Saul. Obedience is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. And obedience and heed are the same words as hear and listen in Hebrew. It's not that burnt offerings and sacrifices are bad or wrong. God instituted burnt offerings and sacrifices so sinful people could approach a holy God. But sacrifice was supposed to be an external display of an internal reality of love and faith that produces obedience. Saul got it wrong. He thinks that if he just does the works, he's good. And the point that Samuel is making in verse 22 is very, very simple, but it's very easy to forget. Works cannot replace faith. Works cannot replace faith. Obedience to God's word is one of the greatest signs of faith. And without the faithful obedience, without the love for God, your sacrifice is worthless. Because the sacrifice isn't what makes God happy. He didn't institute sacrifices because he was hungry sometimes and he likes oxen and sheep and goat. By the way, that is how every other culture around Israel would have understood sacrifices. You offer sacrifices so gods can eat and drink because they have physical needs. That is not why God institutes the sacrifices. He institutes them so a sinful people can approach a holy God. But what is very important in the sacrifices is that they're offered in faith. If that internal component isn't there, if the heart is cold and dead and callous, the sacrifice is worthless. So even if Saul was going to sacrifice all of these animals, all of those sacrifices are completely worthless because they're not offered in faith. They're not offered in obedience. They're not offered in love. The Lord desires the inside over the outside. And Saul is missing the point. Turn with me to Deuteronomy, once again, chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This is the beginning of the Shema in Deuteronomy. Uh, it is probably the best-known passage of Scripture among the Jews, period. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Flip a few pages again back to Deuteronomy 10. We've read it once, we'll read it again. Verses 12 to 13. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but meaningless sacrifice? What does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today for your 
good. Saul had bad theology. He thought he could please God because God asked for sacrifice. So I just have to offer sacrifice. He completely neglected the internal component. He completely neglected the faith. And sadly, he isn't the only one in Israel's history to do this. In fact, something that plagued Israel throughout the centuries was a cold, empty religion that thought just offering the sacrifices was good enough and completely neglected everything else. And the Lord has quite a bit to say about that, by the way. We're going to read from three different passages. Uh, the first is Amos 5, 21 to 24. Amos is the third book of the minor prophets. So you go past all the really big prophets, uh, and then you get to Hosea, and then you get to Joel, and then you get to Amos. Amos 5, verses 21 to 24. I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Someone very close in time to Amos is Isaiah. So you can flip back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 to 17, again addresses this empty religion, this going through the motions religion. Isaiah 1, verses, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. I'm going to read an excerpt from the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary that really gets at this, at the point of the sacrificial system. And it references the two passages that we just looked at. Leviticus 1 to 7 gives the most detailed description of Israel's sacrificial system, including five types of sacrifices. The sacrifices and offerings that were brought by the people were to be the physical expression of their inward devotion. The prophets spoke harshly about the people's concept of sacrifice. They tended to ignore faith, confession, and devotion, thinking the mere act of sacrifice ensured forgiveness. 
The prophets did not want to abolish the sacrificial system. They instead denounced the people's misuse of it. God wanted more than the physical performance of meaningless sacrifices. He desired the offerings to exemplify the heart of the worshiper. And the mindset that Saul had and the mindset that the Israelites had is one that's very easy to fall into even today. Trying to replace faith, the internal, with works, the external. But Samuel doesn't stop there. In verse 23, he makes it very clear what Saul has done. Saul rejected the word of the Lord by disobeying. His disobedience and ours are really two things. Rebellion and insubordination. Refusing to accept God's authority and actively pushing back against God's authority. Disobeying God or disobeying the word of God is rebellion and insubordination against God. Saul disobeyed the Lord's command. Therefore, by implication, he disobeyed God. He pushed against God's authority. It is the idea of taking up arms against God. That is the idea here in rebellion and insubordination. And that's what disobedience to the word of God is. Samuel is making it very clear the reality of sin. Sin is wholesale rejection of God even if it's itty-bitty. Saul rejected God. That's sin. He disobeyed the command of the Lord. That's rebellion and insubordination. And Samuel will go so far as to say that disobedience is as witchcraft and idolatry. I don't think any of you would practice witchcraft. But if you're like me, you'll disobey the Lord. Samuel is really getting at the heart of what sin is. It is open rebellion towards God, whose authority we are supposed to humbly submit to and follow. Saul rejected God. God has rejected Saul. He is going to lose his kingship. And it will be given to his neighbor, one who is better than he is. As God puts it, one who is after God's own heart. And we know who that guy is. That's David. And he shows up actually in the next chapter. And this is how the book of Samuel progresses into the story of David. But also importantly is by the end of 1 Samuel, not only has Saul's sin resulted in a break in his relationship with the Lord. He will no longer be the Lord's king. It will be given to someone else. It has also broken his relationship with Samuel. Saul will never again see Samuel while Samuel is alive. In fact, in a very strange story, uh, Saul will actually see Samuel when Samuel's dead. Because Saul will go to a necromancer, is the word that's used in Hebrew, and have her call up the spirit of Samuel. And Samuel's final message to Saul is, tomorrow you and all of your sons are going to die. And you will be joining me. This is the consequence of Saul's sin. He disobeyed God. He may have had all the purest intentions in the world, but he disobeyed God. And disobedience can never please God because it is rebellion against him. Rather, the Lord delights in obedience. The Lord desires obedience, understanding his word and living in conformity to it. Listening, 
Understanding what the Lord is saying and then acting on that. He desires obedience. For those of you who may be unbelievers here, the first step in obedience is to accept the Savior that the Lord has given you. He has made it very clear that there is only one way by which you can be saved, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son. As we get into the Christmas season, we all hear more about this, and it becomes, unfortunately, rather familiar to us. But God sent His perfect Son to earth to live a life perfectly so that He could become the sacrifice for sin of everyone, for me, for you. He died on the cross for your sins so that you can be saved from your sins and forgiven of your sins. And the first step in obedience to the Lord in any person's life is accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Is putting their trust in what the Lord has done, in what Jesus Christ has done, in his person and his work on the cross as enough to save you from your sins. And then that opens up a whole brand new world of obedience to the Lord, of growing in your faith, a brand new relationship with the Lord where you are no longer an enemy, but a child. And if that didn't make sense to you, please come talk to me afterwards uh, because it's really important that you understand. It's the most important decision that you can make, period. Now for the Christian, the Lord doesn't want uh, your excuses as to why you sinned. He did it first. She did it first, does not stand up. It is not an excuse. It is not acceptable. That's just how I am. I just tell it like it is. I'm brutally honest. That's not acceptable. Those excuses don't stand. What I I, I know it was wrong to say, but what I said was true, doesn't stand. I only treated them that way because they treated me that way. Doesn't stand. The Lord is not waiting for your excuses. He does not want you to rationalize or justify your sin and try and claim some kind of righteous, pious, noble intention behind why you openly rebelled against him. When we sin as Christians, what the Lord wants is confession and repentance. He wants the rebel to put down his arms and surrender. Thankfully, the Lord is not a military tribunal. There is no execution at the end of this confession and this repentance. Instead, there is cleansing and there is restored fellowship. And that is the promise of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we sin, there's a break in our fellowship with the Lord. We don't lose our salvation, but we don't get to enjoy all of the wonders of our relationship with the Lord because the sin is in the way. But when we humbly confess, when we repent in accordance with God's word, in obedience to God's word, he restores us. And that fellowship is restored. And that is the only way to have your sin erased. It's not by church attendance. It's not by giving. It's not by offering all the best sacrifices of the Amalekites. The sacrifice of a Lord for a sinner is a contrite spirit, Psalm 51, 16. And in humble obedience to God's word, repenting of your sin is how that relationship is, or how that fellowship is restored. Because the Lord wants you, above all else, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and to live in humble, faithful obedience to his word, and by extension, him. 
And when you fail to do so, he doesn't want to hear your excuses. He wants you to repent and to enjoy once again the relationship that you have with him as his child and he as your father. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word. While it is sad to read of some of the accounts of the men and women in Scripture, I thank you that their lives do act as warnings. I pray that we are not like Saul when it comes to our sin, quick to blame others, quick to try and get the responsibility off of us, but that we are more like David when it comes to our sin. When we are confronted with sin, with our disobedience, that we are quick to confess, quick to repent, quick to restore that fellowship once again with you. I pray that we are living in faith, that we aren't just going through the motions every week, coming to church or praying or going to Wednesday night ministries or whatever else it may be that we do, but that it would all be grounded in our faith, in our love for you, in our desire to obey you, in our desire to be more like the Lord, more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Give us that desire. Give us that faith that we may not be offering up meaningless sacrifices, but we may be offering up effective sacrifices because both the inside and the outside are in conformity to your word. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.